Well, it's good to be back with you, Eastbridge. Uh, it's been about once a month that I've been coming, and it's been a privilege to fill in for you, and Lord willing, you'll get to hear me again in two weeks. And then, thankfully, I'm very pleased and very glad to hear that uh, you'll be soon calling a new pastor, and what an answered prayer, and very, very excited for you, and pray that um, you'll welcome him, and he will just take up where uh, your previous pastor left off, and may the Lord bless your church as you uh, continue to serve the Lord in Mount Pleasant. Our scripture reading this morning is only two verses. It's in the book of Revelation in chapter 2. And a few weeks ago, a month or so ago, when I was with you, we uh, heard about the church in Ephesus, and today we'll skip one of the seven churches and go to the church in Pergamum. So it's Revelation chapter 2, and it'll be verses 12 through 13. And then in two weeks, we'll hear the second part of this passage. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. This is, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As we come back today to look in the book of Revelation, we look again in the first section of the book that has the letters to the seven churches in, um, that were in what's now Turkey. And as we considered this a few months ago, we remember that these were real world, real life churches, probably not too unlike Eastbridge Church. It was a gathering of saints together on the Lord's Day. And there were seven churches in Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And we can learn a lot this morning from Jesus' words to the church in Pergamum in just the two verses we read. Because when we look at these seven churches, we see ourselves. We find Jesus' comfort, but also his admonition, his words of challenge to these churches. This is why God's word is often referred to as a sword, because it cuts and penetrates at the same time that it comforts us. So in chapter 2 of Revelation, we find the letter to the church in the city of Pergamum. And we see again that these letters were given directly from Jesus himself to John, the apostle, to give to the churches. They are words of comfort, and they are also words of challenge. And we'll hear that today, and we'll hear that, Lord willing, in two weeks when I'm with you again. And first we read that G how Jesus commends the churches, how he praises them for doing good, and also how he admonishes them, how he challenges and rebukes them for ways that they may have turned away from him. Verses 12 through 13, Jesus commends and praises the church at Pergamum for what they had done well. And we can find comfort in these words that Jesus commends his church in Pergamum. Because we know that 
for believers in Christ, our Lord is pleased with the good that his children do for him, the good works. And he is honored when we believers in Christ, when we follow him, when, we, when our lives show the fruit of his saving grace in our lives. In Matthew 25, Jesus gives the parable of the talents. And what does he say at the end of the parable to the two faithful servants? He says, well done, good and faithful servant. We know, of course, that our good works have no power to save us or justify us before God. Only through faith in Christ are we justified before God, but good works are the evidence They're the fruit of a true believer in Christ. One who has been justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So Jesus recognized the good that the church in Pergamum, maybe we call them the first church at Pergamum, what they did. And so Jesus' words begin here, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, And it's interesting and maybe a bit startling to read Jesus saying the one who carries the sword, but the sword is a common metaphor in scripture. The word of God is described, as I mentioned, as a sword. In Hebrews 4.12, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God in Ephesians chapter six as part of the full armor of God. And the sword is also used in the Bible in the context of the magistrates, or the civil authorities. Romans 13, 4 describes our duty to the civil authorities and says that the the rulers, the magistrate, bears the sword for the punishment of evil and the promotion of good. And so our civil authorities bear the sword today, metaphorically, meaning they have the power to enforce law and to inflict punishment. And in ancient times, the sword was an important part of a soldier's army, armor, perhaps the most important thing that he carried. A sharp sword in the hands of a skilled soldier could mean the difference between life and death on the battlefield. And so Jesus carries a sharp and two-edged sword. He is the true king of kings. He is the true magistrate, if you will, the ruler under which all the rulers of men have to submit. The governors and kings and presidents we know today, they will be here today and gone tomorrow. But Jesus alone is the king of kings, the one who carries the true sword of rule. And this comforts us because if we live under ungodly rulers, we know that Jesus is the true king of kings. And our presidents and rulers and globalists may believe that they are the king of the hill, but it will only be temporary. So we need not fear if we live under wicked men, magistrates or governors or presidents or kings. We know that Jesus is the king of kings and that he carries a true sword. And that comforts us as believers in Christ. In verse 13, Jesus tells his church in Pergamum that I know that you live in the place where Satan has his throne. 
And if you're like me, if you were maybe reading this passage and stopped there and thought, that's a very startling thing to say, that these Christians lived where Satan had his throne. You wonder immediately, what was it like to live in Pergamum? Well, we know a few things from the passage here. First, we know that we have an enemy. And Satan's attack against Christians and against the church at times are relentless. But we also know that Satan is not God. He is not all-powerful. He is not all-knowing. He is not all-powerful like God is. In ancient times, the city of Pergamum was a center of pagan worship. And there were numerous temples in the city. There were temples to Asclepius, who was the god of healing, as well as temples to Zeus and Dionysius and Athena. So imagine the Christians in their day seeing all these temples as they walked to worship on the Lord's day. Maybe it's like today when we drive past the temples of our day, the strip clubs, the abortion clinics. Perhaps it was like that for the saints in Pergamum as they walked past the giant temple to Zeus, perhaps in the center of the city. But Pergamum also was a center for emperor worship. According to one commentary I read while preparing Pergamum had a temple dedicated to Rome from the very earliest days. It was a center of the emperor cult. So think about the social pressure and the challenge that it must have been for the Christians living where the people openly worshipped and made offerings to the emperor. It's almost incredible for us to think that what that was like Imagine going to a temple and giving an offering to the president. That's something about what it was like for them. And of course, the Christians could not worship any of the pagan gods, even though certainly their neighbors would have. And they, of course, could not make any offering to the emperor. There's no way that the saints could say, Caesar is Lord, because only Jesus is Lord. And these Christians would have certainly been looked at with suspicion for not giving honor to Caesar. Maybe they were thought of as dangerous, insurrectionists, or rebels. And it is much like today. We Christians today are feeling more and more pressure from our culture to give honor to, first of all, the idols of our culture, but also to the state, to the government and its values, and what it says is valuable and honorable. Now, this doesn't mean that we are not to be peaceable citizens. Of course, we are. That honors God for us to be humble and peaceable as citizens of our country. But when the question comes to us, is Caesar Lord or is Jesus Lord? The answer that we believers must give is clear that only Jesus is Lord. And so we should not be surprised then to hear Jesus say that the Pergamum Christians lived where Satan's throne is. 
So how can we understand this Satan's throne in Jesus's language here? Well, first we know that Satan's throne is only temporary. It will not last. Our enemy may have sway right now in a fallen world, but if you read to the end of the book of Revelation in chapter 21, you will see Satan's fate, his doom. Satan, our enemy, will one day be cast into the lake of fire and he, quote, will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So we know that our enemy will be defeated. And second, we know that Satan can do nothing apart from God's permission. So we know that God only is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And in his providential and sometimes mysterious ways, God has allowed our enemy Satan to exercise sway and influence in the world. But again, we do not think of Satan as a God. He is not a God. He is not powerful, all-powerful and all-knowing. Satan is a created being. And even when it appears that he is winning, we know that God alone is Lord and he will one day destroy our enemy. So as we continue in our study and thinking of how Jesus commends the Christians in Pergamum, there are two ways that he does, and one in a positive way to hold fast to Christ, and then a negative way to not deny. So Jesus tells the Pergamum Christians that they have held fast to his name and to his faith. What does it mean to hold fast to Christ and to his name? First, it means that to see Christ and his name as supremely important, more than anything else. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus gives an important teaching on how not to be anxious. And it is a great temptation for all of us to be anxious. I know that in my own life. Jesus says in Matthew 6, Do not seek the things of the world, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. We hold tightly to those things that are most important to us. If you're married, you hold fast to your spouse. Rightly so, and that's the Bible's teaching about leaving and cleaving. But the question we all must ask ourselves as believers, is Jesus Christ in his name, in his glory, the most important and paramount thing in your life? Or is your Christian faith merely something that happens on Sunday for a few hours? Do you see Jesus and his name and his word as supremely valuable? If not, I encourage you to examine your heart and yourself. Second Peter chapter 2 instructs us to be diligent in confirming our calling and election. Second, holding fast to Christ's name means that we belong to him and to no one else. The world is going to com compete strongly for your affections and mine. It will call us and try to draw us to itself. Holding fast to Christ is a message to the world that we belong to him and not the world. So what competes for your affections today? 
is the world and our culture calling and wooing you more to itself and its values? Do you hear the world's call more than Christ's call? If you're tempted that way, I urge you to repent and turn back to Jesus and give your life to him. The saints at Pergamum were living where Satan had his throne and yet they were holding fast to Christ and they did not turn from him. And it may be hard for us to imagine, but perhaps we can, the pressure that these saints, these Christians, these believers were facing. A few weeks ago when we learned and heard about the church in Ephesus, we know that these cities in the Roman Empire had trade guilds. And many of the members of the church were tradesmen who were be members of these guilds. And many of these were, had patron gods and goddesses of these guilds. And when they met together, they would certainly have had a meal that would have been offered to these, this idol. They would likely have had prayers offered to one of the gods dedicated to their trade guild. Think about how difficult it may have been for the believers to try to still be members of these trade guilds and have that pressure on them to worship a god. So Jesus also commends the Christians in Pergamum as we might say in a negative way, something they did not do, that they did not deny Christ. So how, how is it then that we do not deny Jesus? Well, not denying Christ, first of all, means that whatever the cost, we choose to declare that we are believers in Jesus. And sometimes that, frankly, is not easy because I know my heart and perhaps many of you, it is easy to be swayed sometimes. And when the pressure and the insults and the challenges come, it's not easy to stand fast. I know that in my own life. To say, yes, I am a Christian. I am a believer in Jesus Christ alone. This is how you and I don't deny him. Secondly, not denying Christ means that we, you and I, are prepared to give up all things for the sake of knowing him. Like the Apostle Paul said in Philippians 3, that he considered all things, including his reputation, to be rubbish, to be garbage, if only he could know Jesus. We must be prepared that we may be slandered, for being Christians. We may, must be prepared that we may lose our livelihood or even our lives, which we'll consider in just a minute, for the sake of following him. We may lose relationships, and some of you may have experienced a, a fault, uh, as it were, in your family. Maybe a close friend has turned away or a family member that was dear to you. I also know that from members of my family. This isn't easy to hear, but Jesus said that he came not to bring peace, but even a sword that would divide families. 
So third, not denying Christ means that we follow Romans 1.16 and we are not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes to the Jew first and then to the Greek. And this is a challenging, another challenging verse to me because I have to ask myself, am I not ashamed of the gospel of Christ? For it is the power of God to salvation. And we know today that the gospel is foolishness to the world. And now in our day, it's being called bigotry and intolerance and hatred. For us to proclaim as Christians that we are dead sinners in need of the grace of God in Jesus is very offensive to a world that values the therapeutic and the self-centered. So I would challenge you today to not be ashamed of Christ and to follow him with everything that you are and have because he has given his life for you. He has poured out his grace and his mercy on you to save you. And so I encourage you that when it comes from the culture and uh, society and perhaps even your friends and family to stand for him, to know that he is the most valuable thing uh, in your life. And so finally, we consider Antipas a man who was killed, who has sacrificed his life And we don't know who Antipas was, but perhaps he was an elder. He was a leader in the church. Maybe he was prominent in evangelizing the city. He was perhaps well-known to uh, members of the city, Um, could have been a a high-ranking person, an, an aristocrat even. And Antipas made the ultimate sacrifice. He lost his life for his faith in Christ. And we know that, again, to hold fast to Christ, to not deny him, may sometimes be costly. But let us be encouraged by Antipas, whoever he was, by his witness to us, that he saw Jesus Christ as supremely valuable, even at the loss of his life. So Jesus praises the Pergamum Christians for what they did well. And they did several things well. They held fast to Jesus. So think about again what it means to hold fast to Christ, to not let go of him with everything that you are, knowing that he holds fast to you and he will never let you go. And remembering that he gave his very life, totally innocent, sacrificed on the cross to bear the punishment for your sins and to give you life and forgiveness. And to not deny Christ in whatever challenge may come to you and whatever challenge may be with you right now. Pray and ask God to strengthen your faith to help you hold fast to him because he is faithful. And know that he, as the good shepherd, as your good shepherd, will never lose you, will never leave you or forsake you. Is Christ most important to you? Hear his words then to the church in Pergamum. Hold fast to Jesus and don't deny him. Let's pray together. Lord, today we...
we hear your words and we know, gracious Lord, that your words do challenge us. They are, they cut to the, to the heart, to the soul. And for that, we are thankful. And Lord, I do pray for everyone here as we have heard these challenging words and as we'll hear more challenging words in two weeks that you said to your church in Pergamum. Lord, I pray that we would all leave encouraged, that we would hold fast to Christ, our Savior, that we would not deny him, and that we would know that, Lord, you will keep us always, your true children, your true believers, you will never lose us. And so for that, we thank you. And we thank you for hearing our prayers now, Lord, as we uh, worship and as we once again sing your praises. So thank you, Lord, for hearing our prayers now. We pray them in Jesus' name, amen.